At this point, it was 1994, and the internet was starting to take off, especially in San Francisco. And I went to my business school reunion, and Gary invited me to join him. The company was actually called Electric Classified. So Match.com was only supposed to be a proof of concept for a broader set of services um, to take over classified advertising. In the end, Match is the only one that survived, and obviously I'm very proud of it. This is Seeking Startups, a show that gives you an inside look into the minds of ambitious people who are trying to change the world. Learn about what they're building, their personal stories, and invest in the founders you believe in. Now with equity crowdfunding, anyone can invest in early stage private startups. If you're searching for entertaining, educational, and inspirational content about startup investing, this show is for you. I'm your host, Maxim Davis, and today on Seeking Startups, we have Fran Meyer, the CEO of BabyQuip. Fran has an incredible entrepreneurial story spanning back to the 90s when she was the founding member of Match.com. Ever since, Fran has been involved in the startup space, working at Woman.com, Blue Light, and Trustee. Today, Fran is the CEO of BabyQuip, a marketplace that connects traveling parents with quality providers that supply baby gear on the go. Listen up to this fascinating show as we talk about her upbringing, her time at Match, her experience on Shark Tank, and her vision for BabyQuip. You don't want to miss it. Hey, I would like to quickly say that everything you hear in this podcast is for educational purposes only. This is not financial advice and I'm not endorsing this company. Please do proper due diligence before investing in any startup. Okay, now with that out of the way, let's get started. So Fran, could you start by briefly describing your company, BabyQuip? BabyQuip is the leading baby gear rental company across the U.S. for service. Uh, We deliver strollers, car seats, cribs, toys to families on the go. And we do this through a network of independent contractors who we call quality providers. These are mostly moms, um, but we have retired couples and, and teams and so on that own and clean and set up and pick up the gear. So we're like the Airbnb of baby gear. And so let's say I'm a parent traveling with a child. How would I use BabyQuip? Right. So um, before your trip, you would come to our website, babyquip.com. You'd say which location you're going to and the dates. And you might want to say, hey, I'm looking for a big crib or a Graco car seat or what have you. And then you'll come to our website and you'll see the people at your destination who are willing to meet you at the airport or your Airbnb or maybe your parents' house. And then you can look at their reviews. You can look at the the gear that they have and make your selection and check out from there. Okay. So you're, you're a marketplace, basically. Yeah, we are a marketplace that connects the parents to the independent contractors, the quality providers who provide the gear. I see. Let's say I was uh, I wanted to be a provider of the baby equipment. What does that process look like to get on your platform? Yeah, so uh, it's kind of extensive because we've got to really make sure that our quality providers are committed to clean and safe gear. And so you'd apply, you'd have an interview. If everybody wants to go forward, then you'd be given some training materials that really focus on safety and cleanliness, but a little bit on hospitality or things like that. And then we would turn you live in the market. Hopefully at that point, you've already bought some baby gear. Or perhaps you already have some. But this is more than just renting extra gear. 
that you might have from your own family. This is really building a business on our platform. Okay. And so I'd like to get to know more about you and um, the experiences that have influenced you over your lifetime. So let's go back to your childhood. What was it like growing up in, in Santa Fe, New Mexico? Well, Santa Fe is a small town with a big town attitude. So okay. <laughs> uh, it was really kind of great to grow up in such a beautiful place that is so rich with culture. And um, yeah, it was kind of fun. My dad was in sales. So, you know, I remember being in the car with him. He talked to me about closing a deal or how you position uh, an opportunity. So I kind of got into that. I think it was my early you know, selling Girl Scout cookies and other things were my early entrepreneurial um, efforts. Sure, sure. And so you said that it's a small town with a with a big town attitude. Eventually, you did move to uh, quite, a, quite a big town, um, San Francisco area. Um, what kind of led you to do that? Well, I was very fortunate. I was able to go to Stanford after high school. And okay. at that point, I had applied to a lot of good schools, but California seemed a little bit more close to New Mexico, obviously. Right. And its Spanish style the campus appealed to me, not to mention the wonderful weather and the reputation that Stanford had. So I felt like I, you know, my high school here in Santa Fe was not especially challenging. And so it was kind of fun to go to Stanford and... Uh, and really learn. And I really enjoyed that. Needless to say, if you're at Stanford in the early 80s, there's a lot of technology going around. And, you know, I found myself being very interested in all of that. Right. And so you study public policy and marketing. What first drew you to those, you know, industries? Well, actually, it was public policy and undergrad. And mostly that was because it was um, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. So I took some economics and political science and some history and some stats and organizational theory, that kind of thing. And um, I was also an English major for a while. So, you know, I was able to really see a whole lot of interest. Mm -hmm. And then for business school, after I did some consulting work in between undergrad and business school, uh, that background turned out to be really good. And it's in business school where I really thought about marketing. And um, the reason why I chose marketing is I really felt an affinity to, to the whole idea of positioning products and services that made sense, that solved problems. I also, um, after business school, went to the Clorox company, which especially in that era was very much the postgraduate school of marketing, right? So there's Procter & Gamble, there's Clorox, General Mills, Kellogg, you know, consumer packaged goods brands. And I like that approach to managing a product line, a brand level approach, because it encompasses not just advertising and promotion, but things like packaging and understanding the margins and, you know, really getting into what is the unique value proposition for these products and services. So, you know, while I've been an entrepreneur for a long time, I really come to it from a brand and marketing focus. And so I read somewhere that a friend at Stanford, uh, Gary Creeman, first introduced uh, you to the idea of becoming an, or an original member of uh, Match.com. Is that right? 
Yeah, so Gary and I went to business school together. And at that point, I had left Clorox and I was at AAA, the car uh, insurance and service company. And really was, um, you know, at this point, it was 1994 and the internet was starting to take off, especially in San Francisco. Right. And I went to my business school reunion and Gary invited me to join him. The company was actually called Electric Classified. So Match.com was only supposed to be a proof of concept for a broader set of services um, to take over classified advertising. In the end, Match is the only one that survived, and obviously I'm very proud of it. So I think Gary hired me in part because of my experience in marketing and marketing to women that I was doing at Clorox. Um, And I think the big idea that we had was online personals was a brand new concept. Personals in the newspapers were kind of sleazy. Let's reinvent this for a new time. And, um, and that's what we did. So what made you so compelled, I mean, to leave your corporate job? You had it, uh, a stable job. You're probably doing quite well um, and, and work for Match. Was it the excitement of the Internet? What made you so compelled? Well, there's just no way I was going to sit out the Internet. No, (laughs) I I have two grown sons and they're both in tech. And we had a conversation recently where I said to them, you have to understand the internet happened, right? (laughs) To people of my age, the internet happened. And um, to you digital natives, um, you have to understand it was a, a big, big change. And even at AAA and at Clorox, I was looking at ways that how can you really, really market on a one-to-one basis to people? And the internet, that's that's what it brought. And of course, it changed marketing forever. Um, but, you know, no, I wasn't going to sit it out. And a lot of my, my uh, colleagues at Clorox ended up doing a lot of internet stuff too. And um, I think that even then, I just wanted to build and have impact. And Match seemed like as good of a place as any. And I'm very proud of the work that we did there. Yeah, I mean, I also read that you were quite innovative at Match. Um, can you talk about some of the specific novel ideas that you brought you know, into Match? Oh, yeah, a couple of them. One is, um, as, as I mentioned earlier, we were very focused on marketing to women. Right. And in the mid-90s, women really weren't on the internet as much as men were. But also to have any thriving online dating you've got to have some, enough, enough people on both sides of the market, right? And so we thought a lot about the things that we would do to market to women. It wasn't just making it, you know, pretty and, and appealing visually, which it was, but it was really thinking about their needs. So one of the things I, I take credit for, and it's kind of funny, but you've probably done some online dating and, you know, have you ever had to put in your weight in pounds? <laughs> Right, no. right. So that's because of me, right? So when we were thinking about the initial matching questions, you have to understand in the mid-90s, there weren't photos. So you asked questions about hair color oh, and okay. eyes and, 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 and body type is what we ended up with. I because see. We, I knew that if we wanted to attract women, we were not going to ask them to put down their weight. <laughs> Another one that kind of came from um, my experience at AAA where I really understood the power of membership is that we instituted a membership model. 
rather than a pay per contact model, which was, um, you know, the proposal on the time was that people would pay 10 cents or 15 cents to contact somebody. And again, I knew that women wouldn't like that as much. That membership is pretty compelling from a um, positioning standpoint that, you know, you've committed to this program here or this dating site. But I also knew there's ways to upsell and sell different kinds of subscriptions and bundle stuff. And it was, it made more sense from a technology and business model standpoint. And still, even up to now, membership is, is, is basically the model. Um, looking at the online dating space, things changed with uh, social media and uh, apps and the freemium model, but it still has its roots in the membership model. Wow, that's fascinating. Let's talk about your exit from Match. So as you mentioned earlier, Match was actually owned by Electric Classifieds. And if I understand correctly, the, the board wasn't very interested in the online dating space. They were they're more interested in selling classifieds. And so um, instead, they decided to, to sell a company for, for less than 10 million, which obviously turned out to be a, a poor business decision. But at that time, how did you feel about the, the board's decision? Yeah, I fought against it. Um, we were number one in the category. We had, I think, successfully repositioned. Part of the reason the board was hesitant is that on, I'm sorry, newspaper personals were very sleazy and there was still that overhang of that. Um, but the board at that point really had bought into the idea of getting newspapers to put their classified advertising in just to give you a little bit more context. Sure. Uh, eBay didn't really launch until 1997, 1998. Craigslist was around the same time. So there was an opportunity to go after the classified advertising market. My biggest mistake, and one I rectified years later, was I should have put together the investment team and bought it and run it, at least for the year or two. It got sold a year later for $70 million to um, what is now IAC. And so, you know, I could have had a bigger part of that. And, you know, you might have read that one of my passions is to try and inspire female entrepreneurs or women entrepreneurs. Right. And, and um, you know, if I had had more confidence, maybe more support, uh, but also if I had been willing to ask for help, I think somebody would have said, hey, why don't you do this and you take it on and raise the money and run it for a while. And, right. you know, uh, but I learned a good lesson and I had to do over. When we come back, you'll get to hear some of Fran's biggest lessons while at Match. But before that, here's how you can personally invest in BabyQuip. BabyQuip is currently raising up to $4.99 million at an $18 million pre-money valuation on SeedInvest. The current minimum investment amount is $1,000 per investor. Funding is currently open, but is scheduled to close on March 26, 2022 but the round will automatically close if they hit their maximum funding limit before then. If you're interested in getting more information, check the show notes below where you can find a link to their funding page. You were a real trailblazer for being a woman entrepreneur in Silicon Valley during that time. Um, I'm sure there weren't that many. And so what are some of the biggest like lessons you've learned from your experiences at Match? Oh, wow, so many. Um, but I, in terms of being a f- female entrepreneur, it's very much about, I wish I had had more confidence 
Okay. I wish I had had more support directly. I should have sought out more mentors, not just women, but women and men. Um, I also learned, you know, the power of marketing digitally, everything from affiliate marketing, which wasn't even called that then, but we were doing it. So mm-hmm. we would do partnerships with other brands and, and pay affiliate fees. Um, you know, the power of email marketing and the power of brand building. And, and I think that's one of the things I come back to is, you know, we made sure that Match.com was a trusted brand, right? At, uh, our, three, our three words were safe, anonymous, and fun, okay? Mm. And we really tried to be consistent with our brand values. I think I got that from my consumer packaged goods experience. And I think a lot of websites didn't do that at the time, you know? Mm. They, they didn't really think about how do they maintain their brand value. And that, you know, who we were targeting and what our brand value was to those groups was really guided a lot of decisions from the kind of advertising we do, the kind of partnerships we'd make. And um, it certainly helped with PR and the, the social media, if you want to call, that happened then, which wasn't that much. Remember, it was really different. Right, right. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, so after your time at Match, what, what did you do next? So at that point, I went to women.com, which is no longer, but it was um, a leading content site for uh, women. And I was the chief marketing officer and did biz dev. So I think starting my Match.com days through women.com, I was very much focused on also doing business development, forming partnerships to build your brand. And that's what I did there. And um, this was in the late 90s, right before the dot-com bust. And the way we went about things was, what does it take to go public? And Mm. at that point, you could go public. Company could go public with $20 in revenue, which is a real different thing than now. And it was all about going public. So those partnerships were really important. Um, advertising support. So I did a lot of advertiser support. Um, and that was really good. But uh, yeah, we went public in 1999. At that point, I had moved over to a company called BlueLight.com, okay. which was Kmart and SoftBank and basically Yahoo. You know, this was the heady days of the first internet. And I kid you not, I had a marketing budget that was almost $100 million. Wow. <laughs> and then everything crashed the, in, in 2000, 2001, you know. And then eventually you made it um, over to a company called Trustee. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah, so that was kind of interesting. That was right after the dot-com bust. And when I was at women.com and I think even Match, uh, privacy was beginning to be a pretty big issue. And so trustee at the time was very much, uh, well, it was a not-for-profit industry association promoting better privacy practices and awarding a trust mark to companies who met the privacy standards. And um, it's funny because then all of a sudden I was doing things that my public policy degree actually had something something to do with. And I took it because at the time there was dot-com bust. Blue light had had basically faded away. I needed a job. I didn't think I'd end up being there over 10 years. But it was consistent with sort of my belief in trusted brands. Mm -hmm. And 
when I took it over, it was uh, it was almost out of business. So the first couple of years were very much a turnaround. And um, I grew it to, a, a, you know, five or six million in revenue. And, uh, and that was a lot of fun. I was the executive director. But somewhere in there, it became obvious to me that we needed to do more, uh, that there was more technology to look at, there were more privacy challenges, that really we needed to be more technology-based. And I took on changing trustee from a not-for-profit to a venture-backed for-profit company. And that happened finally in 2008. I raised $10 million from Excel. Mm -hmm. And um, so this is my do-over. So this time, instead of walking away, I was able to transition a company, raise some money, get my investors, have the ownership position that I thought was right, and, and take it from there. And so, yeah, you took those lessons that you learned during match and, and applied them. And, and how did that um, work out for you? Yeah, so it worked out pretty well, except that 2008 was followed by a, a pretty big recession. Right. And uh, <laughs> so that was kind of fun. At least we had money in the bank. And we had a good book of business. Uh, together with the board, we did bring in an outside new CEO. And I stepped back doing marketing and biz dev. And I think that was the right move because at that point, I wasn't ready to commit another 10 years to trustee. I was kind of getting itchy to do some other things. So I stayed on the board. I think we brought in the new CEO in 2009. I stayed on the board until about 2014, but left day to day in 2012. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of a fun period for me um, about 10 years ago. And i Moved from Alameda to San Francisco post-divorce. Bought a house literally up up the street from Airbnb. Wow. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and you know, if I look at myself in 2012, I was, or 11, certainly, I was so into the privacy community, you know, all of that. And now, 10 years later, I'm completely into hospitality. And it that happened a few years ago. Yeah, let's talk about that experience. So how did you first come up with the idea for Baby Quip? Yeah, so as I said, I was up the street from Airbnb. I had a three-story house in San Francisco. Before you know it, I was renting rooms in my house to strangers. And um, then I bought a property in Santa Fe, my hometown, because I wanted a place here, put it on Airbnb. And I was like really making a lot of good money decided I didn't have to go get another full-time job. I was going to advise startups and look for some board work and do this rental thing. But, you know, I was kind of getting itchy, honestly. And so I was looking at what are the businesses that are going to grow up around this new way of travel? And what are the businesses that are also harnessing gig work or side hustles uh, to make money? Because clearly that was a big part of the overall trend. And I, you know, even at that point, or 2014, certainly, you were seeing a lot of property management and household cleaning management in companies around there. And in late 2015, or early 2016, I met a gal, so happened to be from Santa Fe, Hmm. but I met her in Silicon Valley. She was working with an accelerator I was advising. Her name is Carrie. And she started this baby gear rental business in Santa Fe. And because she was from Santa Fe, I was, you know, sure, I'm going to learn about what she's doing. 
And she laid it out. And I said, well, you know, I think I should be your CEO. And she didn't say yes right away. But we formed the company in May of 2016. And I felt that given my experience building trusted brands, my uh, network of advisors and investors, um, and my knowledge of, you know, she was doing something like $30,000 a year in Santa Fe. Santa Fe is a small town, you know? Sure. And it's a destination, but it's not Anaheim. I really feel that we had the opportunity to build something. And that first year we put in some, I put in some of my own money to see how hard is it to get the quality providers, the people who supply the, the gear and own it and clean it, pick it up and so on. And how hard is it to get demand? And I think we really tapped into an underserved market. Right. And so you eventually convinced her to become the CEO. And, um, and how did you get Baby Quip off the ground? Did you start expanding into different cities? What was that experience like? Yeah, the first thing that we did is we really focused on supply. And we really tried to identify, you know, people who would be interested in this opportunity. And, you know, one of the people who's down our corporate team, Sarah, was we brought her in in Los Angeles. And, uh, boy, she got business right away. So we kept on adding people in different markets, which is a little bit different than the way most other marketplaces uh, start. Usually you start in a given market and you figure out what works in that market before you go on. But we're a brand about people traveling, families traveling. So I really felt that we had to expand our supply across the United States quickly because we want to be where families were traveling. I see. I see. And, you know, it, I'm sure it was really exciting in the beginning, but I'm sure there was also lots of challenges that you experienced, and, and especially, you know, during the pandemic. So what has been the most complex challenge that BabyQuip has, has experienced, and, and how did you navigate that? Yeah, so typical startup. So I'd say uh, other inflection points were in late 2017. Uh, we were running a little bit low on cash, and uh, Carrie decided to leave the company. Mm. And um, so, you know, when a co-founder leaves, that's a challenge. Uh, but we were able to work things out. And at the time, Joe Meyer, my son, had spent five years at Accenture building technology solutions. And he was looking for something new. So it was kind of fun. He joined up in 2017 as our CTO. And we, since then, he's, he and his team have re, really rewritten all the code base. And we've expanded into some other categories and stuff. So that was an important sort of inflection point. Fast forward to 2020. In March of 2020, we were on Shark Tank. Uh, on March 6th, had a big party. Wow. Joe was there. A bunch of our family members were there, a bunch of friends. And, of course, we were getting our community ready to really see an influx of business. But then, of course, the pandemic hit. Oh, the timing. Yeah. But good news is I had finished my first, 20, my first seed invest in campaign. So I had some money that closed end of 2019 and um, beginning of 2020. And um, we decided to buy a baby gear cleaning business from a company called Top Squad. Mm -hmm. which turned out to be good timing because people were concerned about cleaning. Sure. And so we did that. And I was able to close some other money. And in 2020, we kind of hunkered down to 
address some issues that we needed to, to address, spent a lot less on marketing, obviously, there just wasn't demand, and um, got some government money, which was a first in my career. I was really surprised by that. And by early 2021, things started to pick up. But let me talk a little bit about the things that we addressed in 2020. Sure. Uh, we worked a lot on the, our platform. So we launched the cleaning platform, Baby Quip Cleaning. We really made a lot of improvements to the experience for the quality providers so that they could get their inventory managed. They could, you know, improvements to all the things that they do on the back end. It's fairly complex. It's more complex than an Airbnb host background because our quality providers have multiple cribs and car seats and strollers. We also focus on getting insurance because we felt that we needed very good liability insurance, not just for the company, but for our quality providers. And we were able to secure that. And, uh, and by early 2021, things start to take off in a really big way. Another one was the affiliate portal. So we built a portal for partnerships. And, you know, we weren't forming a lot of partnerships in 2020, but starting in 2021 and, and through now, that's a big focus of the company. I know you've already mentioned your experience on Shark Tank, but let's talk about that because that is really exciting. What, what was it like um, going on there? It was pretty fun. I mean, you know, what an opportunity. You don't get it very often. The whole process of applying and getting ready is really extensive. And at no point are you guaranteed, even after you've put hmm. time and money into it, to that they will film you. And there's no guarantee that it will ultimately air. Interesting. Right. right. So you've kind of got to be committed to doing the best job you can, hoping for the best outcome. And I think the, the approach Joe and I took was when they asked us to do something, we're like, yes, yes, yes. We found it actually in June of 2019, and we had to keep quiet about it. Oh, and that was hard. So right. we didn't even take any. Joe took pictures of himself in L.A., but we didn't take any pictures or share any pictures of us together because then somebody would have asked, what are you guys doing? You know. Yeah, so we yeah. kept it all uh, on the rocks, and we had to keep it quiet. And again, we didn't know if we'd ultimately air, you know. And about, I don't know, a month or so before airing, we got the, the word that would be airing. And at that point, we could prepare our community and our customers for the opportunity. And uh, that was super exciting. Right. In terms of, of our episode overall, um, when, when finally the, the, the camera was on, Joe and I were both on. We were very engaged. The sharks were, were fun to banter with. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of banter between them. And with us, and that was kind of surprising. We didn't really expect that. Um, Mr. Wonderful made us an offer, but I didn't think the terms were good enough. And uh, But we had fun with that. Mm -hmm. So the, the number one feedback I get from people is that we held our ground. And uh, needless to say, we did get a lot of traffic. And whenever it reruns, I, I hear from people, you know, oh, I saw you, whatever. Right. And right. we get some traffic. And I think it's done its job of helping build our brand the unfortunate thing is is march 6 2020 was not the best date but who could have known right right and so you mentioned mr wonderful did give you an offer but none of the other sharks did and so what do you think they missed um in in, in seeing in you and in, in, in your company um yeah 
I, I thought it had Barbara Cochran bid on it because she owns a lot of hotels and so on. She probably could have gotten it. Mm-hmm. Instead, we had the gal from uh, Stitch Fix, and um, I, I'm surprised that she didn't get it. Most moms do get it. Uh, Robert, who has a couple of, of young children, I think he got it. Um, yeah, I don't know. And Cuban was like, uh, you should, you're not going to be able to have enough margin. He thought we were more like Uber and so on. Look, it's really hard. We were in there for 35 minutes. They didn't know anything about us beforehand. And, well, I think we got the concept across. I think the the power of our brand and our community did not quite get across. But that's okay. We did fine. You know, the the goal is to get aired. And not to be called a roach. (laughs) (laughs) In that case, you're a success for sure. (laughs) Hey, I hope you're enjoying the show. But before we hear about the team behind BabyQuip, I thought you might be interested in hearing a few stats about the company. The company is currently headquartered in Santa Fe, New Mexico. BabyQuip has over 800 quality providers covering 49 states. The company has partnerships with Guesty and Avant Stay. BabyQuip also has an affiliate partnership with VRBO. In 2020, BabyQuip generated $490,991 of revenue and had a net loss of $1,475,057. Okay, now let's get back to the episode. Let's move on to your team. So as you mentioned, uh, Joe, um, your son is is on the on the team. And that's really interesting, especially for you know a startup and a tech company. What is that relationship like um, and, and growing that and growing your business? Yeah, well, you know, first of all, there's not a lot of mother-son teams, but there's a lot of brother teams. There's a lot of father-son teams. So in Silicon Valley, it's not that unusual. Okay. And it's not that unusual because what you get is a really high level of trust, you know? And I, I certainly value that. Uh, but, you know... There's there's some funny things like um, Joe doesn't call me mom in <laughs> company meetings. He calls me Fran, right? Which is appropriate, right? right? Right. But sometimes on the personal side of it, it's like, okay, Joe, I am talking to you now as your mother. <laughs> <laughs> I also can't call him Joey anymore. That you know, and 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 I've successfully, generally speaking, do not call him or refer to him as Joey. Um, it it made all the difference to go on Shark Tank, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. because that that was so much more fun. And my my brother in law played the father, uh, trying to deal with all the gear uh, on the Shark Tank show, so that was fun. Oh, okay, I see. But I can't overmanage Joe, you know, and uh, that turns out to be okay because he basically has done a really great job. I I think actually our platform is the unsung hero uh, of Baby Quip. Um, another thing that really stood out to me was the number of team members who have been quality providers on your service. And so besides the direct experience that they have, what made you, um, you know, sure that these were the right people to, to bring on the management team? Oh, it, it's been fantastic. I mean, our community of quality providers, as I mentioned earlier, they're mostly moms, but a lot of them had corporate roles or still do. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so we, we have learned that when we need contractor help, let's say in customer service or in social media or to do training or whatever, 
going to our quality providers is the first place to look. Specifically, for example, Nicole Kitzman, who runs our recruiting and lead gen, she was um, she came to us as a quality provider. She already had her own mom and pop baby gear rental service that she started. And she worked for Google for like 10 years. So, so you know, I felt, and, and she's, she's done a great job, but she really understood the market, you know. And for a little while, I was even a quality provider. So, you know, I like that you kind of have to know what that experience is to recruit for it and so on. Um, yeah, a bunch of our, our team members have started out as quality providers. Sarah, who runs customer service, Sarah Huff. She was the, one of the first people we brought on in L.A. way back when. Um, Teresa Orr, our uh, county manager, also is a quality provider. Um, and I think it keeps us all close to what the experience is. Uh, Lisa Holmes, who does recruiting, yeah, quality provider as well. Okay. Let's talk about your company specifics. So what is your distribution model and how do you get more people uh, on the platform? Yeah, so getting... Um, Quality providers in markets really was the big focus up until about 2020. And we honestly have added, I don't know, about 150 this year, which I think is kind of incredible given a lot of businesses are having a hard time staffing. So we've gotten a lot of people and we get them onboarded. We find them through, well, honestly, about 20% of our quality providers come from being a customer first. Okay. So they've used us, they meet the quality provider, and maybe they have a discussion about the opportunity. Then they come to us and sign up. So that's fantastic. That's a bit of a network effect that we're proud of. Mm -hmm. um, and then we post on job boards and Facebook and other places. And, you know, we don't take everybody who applies either because maybe we have people in the market already adequately serving the market, or maybe we don't think they're a fit. Um, we actually charge $200. We do a background check. We, you know, that covers the initial admin, but it also serves as a bit of a speed bump so that we're only getting people who are seriously committed to delivering clean and safe gear. Right. In, in terms of the people using the service, do you use Facebook advertisement? Do you, do you have any other interesting models that you try you know, to we're very from the very beginning we were very much focused on google adwords because we're solving a problem so people do put in you know rent baby stroller in miami mm, or car seat in san francisco right so that has been the most efficient way to get customer the most efficient paid way to get customers we also put a lot of effort into seo and content marketing so at this point, two thirds of our of our traffic is mostly direct and organic, and a little less than a third is paid. Okay. And we'd like to see that organic and direct grow, and more partnership referrals grow. I see. I see. But uh, now we are working. You know, we've gotten to the scale that we are testing Facebook ads, Pinterest ads, TikToks. Instagram, one of the things that we also did during the pandemic year 2020 is and into 2021 and now is a lot of social media and influencer marketing. Mm. And that has been, 
I, I say the two things that surprised me about Baby Quip would be how powerful that influencer social media is to building a brand. You know, it's it's supercharged from where it was 20 years ago. And the other thing is the community of quality providers is really pretty powerful too. You currently provide baby gear rentals and cleaning, but let's say looking five to 10 years out, do you see yourself expanding into any other industries, providing that marketplace kind of um, experience? Yeah, you know, and I'd love to hire somebody to help me think through all the opportunities we have because we have a lot of opportunity. I'd say right now, we just looking at where Americans are traveling, you know, and how big Florida and California and Hawaii are for us. We really want to expand into Mexico and into more. We're in some of the, the Caribbean countries, but there's more opportunity there. Uh, we'd really like to see cleaning take off a little bit more as we were focused on the rental business in 2021. We neglected that a bit, but I still believe there's a really good opportunity, a lot of partnerships. But, you know, we're building a trusted brand in the mom and baby space, and we think there's other ways we can expand that. Everything from um, getting into more kids and parties. Okay. Uh, we're already doing some of that now. Baby proofing. Um, maybe helping take care of pets as well. Okay. So there's quite a few opportunities. We think we should be a marketplace for family travel as well. Mm, interesting. So let me just say here, I'm looking for product managers with experience in building new categories. So, you know, there's many different ways that you can raise money for your company. And you've had some success raising before, like you said, on Seed Invest. But what really drew you to equity crowdfunding and thought this was the right you know, way for you guys to go? Yeah, you know, it's kind of funny because I would say that a lot of people should be looking at crowd equity crowdfunding as part of their um, fundraising mix. And I think in Silicon Valley, there is still some um, myths that aren't true about it. So they think you're going to put, you know, 200 people on your cap table and that's going to be very hard to manage. Well, no, it turns out it's one or two lines because they get grouped into uh, a special uh, vehicle, sure. right? So, no, I don't have 200 or 1,000 people on my cap table. Um, another thing is they think it will scare off other investors. And I think I'm not saying that. And they shouldn't be scared off because this is a pretty good way to to build your brand among the investment community. I mean, the first time I did this, I was introduced to a lot more investors than I expected. Mm -hmm. I, I, and I think the benefits, especially if you're a consumer brand, really make a lot of sense. So this time we're doing a side-by-side, -side, both Reg, Reg D and Reg CF. Mm -hmm. And the first time we only did Reg D for accredited investors. And it's a lot of work to be able to reach unaccredited investors because the rules require, for example, gap accounting audited financials, and so on. But we felt committed to doing it because our quality providers have asked again and again whether they could invest into BabyQuip. Mm. And many of them, most of them, most people don't meet the requirements of an accredited investor. And, you know, the minimum for an accredited investment is pretty high. But we were able to get through the accounting and the other 
due diligence to present it to uh, Reg CF. And I think a lot of our quality providers and our customers have been investing in BabyQuip so far in this round. So I feel it's a good way to build our brand. It's a good way to meet other investors. It turns out that among our customer group, there's quite a few VCs. Okay. (laughs) So that's been kind of a a nice surprise. And, um, you know, it kind of brings everybody onto the baby quip journey. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything that maybe we missed um, that we talked about with baby quip that you would like to, you know, put out there? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think I touched just a little bit about one or two of the surprises, one being how powerful social media is. But one thing that people don't see because they can't is we have a very, very engaged private Facebook page for our quality providers. And they're on there every day and they're sharing wins. They're sharing problem customers. They're sharing deals that they see on gear. Uh, they answer each other's questions. I mean, we uh, grew 10 times between January of 2021 till July of 2021, okay? 10 times the orders. And while we had to add some customer service support, our community really took care of customers and each other. And that is something that I think is really, really powerful. So I know we're doing a good job for our quality providers. Customers award us with a 94 net promoter score, which is, you know, really high Mm -hmm. and world-class, some would say. And I think it's because we're really meeting the needs in the market, you know. Uh, That's why it reminds me of Match, really. People are so grateful (laughs) for baby trip. They say we save the vacation, and believe me, when we were launching Match, people said, oh, my God, you're saving our lives here. You know, I'll find you love. It's great. I have one final question. And and you've had so many, you know, experiences, entrepreneurial experiences, and then working executive roles. Um, what do you think is more important? Is it more important to be courageous or intelligent? Oh, I, I, guess, I guess I'd probably say courageous. I mean, you know, I, I guess it depends on what you want to do. But, you know, I remember... Um, very vividly the day we started Baby Quip. And it's like, oh my God, I'm getting on this. I'm getting on this roller coaster. I know, you know, and it maybe won't work and it maybe will work great, but I'm getting on this roller coaster. So, you know, it certainly helps to to have experience and smarts. But I mean, if you want to be an entrepreneur, you got to be courageous. This has been an episode of Seeking Startups. I'm your host, Max Davis, and thank you for listening to the whole show. Make sure to subscribe and like this episode. Before I let you go, if you're a founder who is interested in getting highlighted on the show, email me at maxim at seekingstartups.com. Once again, thank you. And until next time, keep investing in the future.